Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. I'm thrilled to bring you the 100th episode of Filter. This podcast has been a blast to host, and I hope that all of you in our audience have been helped by it. To celebrate our 100th episode, I am pleased to present this special two-part interview with Nancy Piercy. Professor Piercy and I discuss her latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. In part one, she shares her story and tells us about her time at Labrie, including knowing Francis Schaeffer and Os Guinness while she was there. We also cover why she wrote this book and exactly what she's addressing. At the end of part one, she also gives us her critique of the popular book, Jesus and John Wayne, by Kristen Kobes Dumez. Nancy Piercy is the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She is professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University. She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek and highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity today. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you enjoyed or helped by this episode or any of our other episodes here on Filter, let me please encourage you to share this show with your friends or leave us a rating and review. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcast. Whenever you take these simple steps, it only takes a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Nancy Piercy. Professor Piercy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Aaron. Well, as I was telling you before, it has been um, one of my goals to have you on the podcast ever since I got it started. Whenever I dreamed about having a podcast one day, you were one of the names that was already on my list to have on. So it is just an honor to get to speak with you today. And I appreciate you making the time. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's, it's already in our pre-interview discussions. It's obvious we have a lot in common. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, well, one of those is, uh, is an appreciation of Francis Schaeffer and his work through his ministry, his writing and his work at Labrie in Switzerland. Uh, I was telling you before that uh, I've, I've loved Schaefer for many years now and read uh, a lot of his books, not all of them, but I will one day, and uh, just been greatly impacted by his work in ministry. And so many of the other people that uh, have had a great impact on me, I discovered through his writing because I started to find who, who influenced him. Uh, and so that's how I found people like Oz Guinness. We were talking about a minute ago and um, Chuck Colson. And your writing, uh, Doug Grothuis, and so uh, anyway, you got to uh, well. How about, you tell us your story of living all over the world, and then eventually making your way to Labrie and um, becoming a Christian there, and just telling us what Labrie was like, what Schaefer was like, and um, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, Labrie Labrie is French for the shelter, and um, it it was the name of. Francis Schaeffer's ministry, which was a, largely apologetics, you know, it was, it was answering intellectual questions that young people had. And I, I ended up there because um, I was raised in a Lutheran home, but it was a very ethnic home. Uh, mm. My parents were Scandinavian. My mom's Norwegian, my dad's Swedish. It's, so it's a little bit like, you know, all Italians are Catholic. So all Scandinavians are Lutheran. And so there was not, I, I would say there was not a lot of real uh, fervid 
commitment in my family. Um, and so when I was in high school, about halfway through high school, I started asking questions. I just started asking, how do we know it's true? You know, I'm, at, I'm attending a public high school, so all my textbooks are secular, all my teachers are secular. And I just start wondering, how do we know Christianity is true? Um, and unfortunately, nobody in my life could answer that question. Mm. I asked a university professor, point blank, why are you Christian? He said, works for me. I said, you're a university professor and that's all you've got. <laughs> uh, and I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As if it was a psychological phase that I would just outgrow. Mm. And so about halfway through high school, I decided maybe Christianity just didn't have any answers. And I very intentionally walked away from my Christian upbringing and started on a very conscious search for truth. I decided it was up to me to find out. My goal was to survey all the religions and philosophies of the world and decide which one was true. And actually, that's how I started studying philosophy. I walked down the hallway to the library at the public high school I attended and pulling, started pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, wow, is, if I can't find any adults to talk to me about this, is, isn't that the job of the philosophers to answer questions like, what is truth and how do we know it? And is there meaning to life? And is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just true for me, true for you? Um, and, and I very quickly concluded that if there was no God, then the answer to all those questions was no. There's not a meaning to life. There's not a foundation for ethics. And I, I realized there was not even a foundation for knowledge. And what I, what I mean by that is I thought, well, if all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of space-time history, then what makes me think I could have some sort of transcendent, universal, absolute truth? Ridiculous. That's how I thought of it as a 16-year-old. You know. yeah. uh, ridiculous. So by, by the time I graduated from high school, I was already a very confirmed relativist, skeptic, even determinist, because my science classes taught me we are just complex machines anyway, operating by natural forces. Um, so it was a couple of years later that I ended up at Labrie in Switzerland. We had lived overseas when I was a child, and so I had gone back to Germany. And I ended up at Labrie, which is in Switzerland. And that was the first time I'd ever encountered any Christians who talked about apologetics, who, who showed that there could be good reasons, arguments, evidence, who could engage with the secular isms that I had absorbed by that time. Mm -hmm. and, and I was blown away. I was shocked. I had, had no idea that Christians, that there, were, that there were Christians who could engage with these kinds of philosophical, intellectual questions. Um, in fact, um, I, was so, I was so blown away that uh, I left after a month. In other words, I, I was afraid of being drawn in emotionally. It was so attractive. You know, not only were they answering the intellectual questions, which is the most important thing, but they also, uh, uh, well, Schaefer was known for endorsing the arts, right? I mean, that's the term cultural apologetics was coined to describe what he did because he looked at mm. how ideas percolate down through cultural forms like literature and music and movies and art. Yeah. Uh, and I was studying uh, violin. I was studying violin at the uh, conservatory in Heidelberg, Germany. So the fact that he cared about the arts was really big for me. Um, and many people who were there said, 
uh, it was also the quality of Christian community uh, that was almost as impressive as the apologetics. In other words, we saw we saw a form of community and love and Christian love that we'd never experienced back home. Hmm. And so, uh, the upshot was, I felt very emotionally drawn, and I did not. I did not want to become a Christian on emotional reasons because Christianity had already let me down once. And so I was not going to come back unless I was intellectually convinced it was true. So I left Labrie uh, and, and just continued studying apologetics until I was convinced. And a year and a half later, I went back to Labrie. And that's why I stayed for five months and, and became... Um, was it four months? Four months uh, plus the one month earlier is five months um, that's where I really got grounded in Christian worldview. And, uh, and, and if you read my books, you'll see they all reflect in some way the influence of Schaefer's thinking, uh, though I try to take it further, expand it, you know, apply it for our own day. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that was very, a, a very, it was the re- it is the reason I became a Christian. So I can't say I became a Christian at Libri because it was actually in between my two trips. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was, bec- it was definitely because of Libri that I became a Christian. Yeah. So how did Libri work? What, what, were, what was an average day like over there? How, how was the teaching done and the life done together over there? Yeah, so it started very organically. Nobody said, hey, let's have a residential ministry where we have people come live. <laughs> Instead, it started out with um, when Schaefer's three, old, uh, three daughters were old enough to go down the mountain, right there in the Swiss Alps, to go down the mountain to the Lausanne University. Um, they would talk to their friends, and their friends would have questions about God. And they would say, hey, you need to talk, you, you should talk to my dad. <laughs> he, he's really good with those kinds of questions. And so mm-hmm. they would take that little train up the mountain. You've seen those pictures of the trains that go up the Swiss Alps. Um, and because it was so inaccessible, they would generally spend the weekend. And then they would tell their friends and new students would come up the next weekend. And then other students would come up the next weekend. And pretty soon the Schaefers had people sleeping on their couches and their hallways and their balconies, and it sort of uh, morphed very organically into a residential ministry um, as people who uh, often who who had been converted at Labrie would say, well, we'd like to join this ministry, so they would buy the chalet down the street. I say chalet because that's the kind of houses people live in in the Swiss Alps. It sounds like a luxury home, but it's not. <laughs> it's just what they live. Farmers live in chalets. Uh-huh. So they would buy the chalet down the street. And eventually, uh, Labrie was, uh, it's just a group of homes scattered through a little Swiss farming village. Mm-hmm. And you would live with a Christian family and actually you know, participate in, in the daily chores so you'd study, it eventually developed where you'd study half a day and you'd participate in the daily chores for half a day. So you really were a member of the community. And many uh, many nations, you, you may know this, uh, it's very common that they have a three-month tourist visa. Uh, and so what happened is a lot of people would come there and, and they'd spend their three months and, uh, you know, and then leave. So it's a, almost like a semester abroad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So... so it was, the, but the emphasis was always on, you know, yes, you're here to study, but you're also here to actually see what Christian community looks like. And one of, you probably have read Schaefer's book, Love is the Final Apologetic. Uh, the Mark of the Christian is the title. And he yeah. argues there that love is the final apologetic. 
And that was really an important part as well, that we, you live with a Christian family. With a Christian family. In other words, Schaefer wasn't just a talking head, you know, yeah. who came in and spoke at a conference behind a lectern and then, you know, jets off back to Switzerland. He was somebody that you saw day in and day out, you know, and how he interacted with his own family and with, with the students and so on. So it really was a, a very holistic kind of witness. Yeah. And what was Schaefer like? You know, um, since being at Labrie, I have worked in other ministries and obviously since becoming a Christian. And I have to tell you, over the years, I've actually come to appreciate Schaefer more. Hmm. Uh, he was the real deal. That's how my husband puts it. He hmm. says, he was the real deal. He was authentic. Hmm. You know, he couldn't hide anything because you're living in his home. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Um, so he was, I would say he was probably the most authentic person that I've known in terms of like somebody who ha- was in Christian ministry and well-known. Um, he was, he was well, he was warm. He was personable. Um, he was easy to talk to. He did, he, you know, was, was overtly caring about people. He was that kind of a person. You know, I, um, I, I also went to a library conference once after I'd come back to the States, and somebody asked him, do you consider yourself a philosopher or a theologian? And he said, I'm an evangelist. Mm. And I thought, that's it. That captures it. He really was an evangelist at heart, that he just, he, he had a passion for helping people find God, you know, connect to God. And and. That I, I thought that captured well his two his two heart. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on from that stage of life, we were talking before, and I share with you uh, a frequent guest on our show has been Oz Guinness, and he's had another. He, he's also one who's had a major impact on my life, and you got to be there at the same time as him. I've talked to him before about Labrie and all, and so what was what was Oz like as a young man? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're going to have him on your show again, so I better be careful. <laughs> no, we were all very impressed with Oz. So the first time I was at Labrie, Oz was still single, and um, he was one of the lecturers. And when I went back the second time, he was married to Jenny um, and was still one of the lecturers. But we were all very impressed with with uh, Oz because he was one of the be- better lecturers there. You know, Schaefer would lecture regularly. Schaefer would also hold Saturday night discussions. You know, that was kind of a... Uh, regular thing, um, and then then there were a couple of staff members who who were regular lecturers. Everyone mm. loved it when Oz was the lecturer because he was so uh, he, he was so good at it, um, mm. and uh, and he um, well of course we all loved his British accent too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he would. Um, I, I'm, I'm remembering, for example, one. I still, after all this time, I'm still remembering how he would talk about how you know every secular, every secularism, um, rationalism, materialism, empiricism, all mm-hmm. have some core truth because we're all made in God's image and we all have to live in God's world, and so we all discover some truth. And he he was he talked about existentialism in particular, and he said you know. He said Christianity should be the you know the best form of existentialism, just like it is the best empiricism, because you know God made our five senses, 
And so in order to uh, interact with the world that he made, so of course we value the empirical realm. Empirical science got its start in many ways from Christianity because of that. I mean, ancient Greeks didn't value the the senses. Plato and Aristotle didn't value the senses. Uh, That was not an adequate, reliable form of knowledge. So it was Christianity that said, yes, we trust our senses because God made them that way, made us with our senses to know the world. Anyway, uh, Mm -hmm. we should be the best rationalist because, you know, Jesus is the Logos. We should be the best naturalist because nature was made by God and we respect it. And anyway, he was he, that night he was in, uh, focusing on existentialism. And I, I raised my hand. Um, I was not a Christian yet. <laughs> this was the first time I was at Liberia. And so I raised my hand and I said, what do you mean? What do you mean Christians should be the best existentialist? And, he, and so he talked about this sort of day-by-day walk with God. You know, how as Christians we don't just believe a uh, an abstract intellectual system uh, but it's a living daily experience as we make our decisions you know because existentialism focuses on how we make our decisions day by day in a sense we create our life through the decisions we make mm. and well that's a very Christian insight <laughs> you know we do in fact in a sense create our life by day to day decisions that we make um based on God's revelation, based on God's presence in our life. And there are times when we don't know what's... Uh, scripture gives general principles, but there are times when we don't really know what God's will is for this particular point, or, or you know, what the right thing to do is. And so, in, in that sense, the sort of existential reality of day-by-day decision-making, day-by-day living, you know, Christians should be... Uh, uh, it, so he was using, yeah, he was being provocative, of course, you know, we should be the best existentialist. But his point was that we do, in fact, have to trust God moment by moment. It's, it's not just a one-shot deal. Okay, I became a Christian, you know, now I, now I live under my own, you know, rational understanding. No, we, moment by moment, we have to be making decisions based on God's truth. Mm. Wow, well. I, I could ask for more and more questions, but we do have other topics that we're going to be talking about today. And so, uh, but thank you for sharing about uh, your experiences there and what it was like, um, because yeah, it's great to hear. But today we're talking about your new book that is, as of our recording, hasn't come out yet, but will be coming out soon, called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And so just to kick off the conversation about this, why did you decide to write a book about masculinity in our culture? Well, for starters, of course, it's very obvious that men are being attacked in our culture in the sense of um, you know, masculinity itself being demeaned as harmful and toxic and, and dangerous. I, it's, it was very easy to start the book with several provocative quotes. The Washington Post had an article called, Why Can't We Hate Men? Like, mm. wait a minute. <laughs> It, to say something so bluntly in, in, you know, in a respected mainstream publication, it, this is no longer on the fringe, you know, the, the feminist fringe. This is now mainstream that you can just attack men. Or the uh, Huff, Huffington Post said uh, her New Year's resolution was to kill all men. Or uh, you can buy T-shirts now that say things like, so many, so many men, so little ammunition. Mm. Uh, books have come out with titles like, 
no good men. I hate men. And are men necessary? So no wonder. Oh, th this is a stat that just came out, by the way. Um, for International Women's Day, a statistic came out in, in Britain. 55% of men say that, and, and let me read it to you. It says, society has gone so far in promoting women's rights that it is now discriminating against men. 55% of men say that. That's, whether you agree or not, that's a lot of men. Mm -hmm. And and actually, what surprised me even more, though, was that men themselves have kind of jumped on the bandwagon. I was able to find quotes. Um, let me see. You probably you may have seen this one because it was not that long ago. The director of the movie Avatar wrote, testosterone is a toxin hmm. that you have to work out of your system. Or a it's a, a best-selling science fiction writer, Hugh, Hugh Howey. Testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. Or a book by a man uh, saying, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Mm. So, I, I was astonished to find even men saying, you know, denigrating their own sex. So uh, clearly one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book is that I wanted to say, where is this coming from? Where is this incredibly negative view of masculinity coming from? How can we explain it? How can we respond to it? But the, f the final trigger, actually, in, in deciding to, to write the book was, um, well, was when I saw how much Christian men are kind of treated as Exhibit A, <laughs> you know, mm. the, the, main, the main example of toxicity is, uh, is said to be Christian men. Uh, evangelical men and anyone who's theologically conservative and who uh, who believes in some sort of uh, male headship in the home and that was easy to find too I, I found both both secular and Christian people L let me read you a couple of these uh, quotes um, conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse both physical and emotional or another quote, it's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. A theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So I, that, I thought, okay, wow, it's not just a problem in our culture, it's probably exacerbated even in Christian culture that Christian men are treated as the, the, the worst examples of... Mm patriarchy and oppression to women and abuse abuse and and control and so on and then and then i read the sociological data and found out that that was none of the, none of it was true mm. <laughs> so this this is this is why i just had to write the book because it's hidden away in the academic literature and and it's not getting out but the sociologists looked at these charges and said, well, where's your evidence? You're, yeah. making these, you know, you're making all these charges. Where's your evidence? And so they started doing studies. And I quote, I think about 12, about a dozen sociologists who've been doing work on this. Um, my go-to one, the, the one who's done the largest study is Brad Wilcox, who mm -hmm. teaches at the University of Virginia and is head of the uh, Institute for Family Studies. Um, so I'll quote, I'll quote him in particular, but he, he says, okay, where's, where are the studies? Where's the evidence? Where's the data? Well, it turns out that 
sociologists have been founding for the last few decades that evangelical Christian men who are really, you know, authentically committed to their Christian faith, who attend church regularly, actually test out as being the most loving to their wives. By the way, they do um, interview the wives separately, <laughs> which is important. Mm. Um, most, uh, their wives themselves report being the happiest with their husband's expressions of love and affection. They're the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like sports or church youth group, as well as discipline like setting bedtime, setting limits on screen time. Mm-hmm. And they have the lowest level of divorce and the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. So the, the sociological facts totally debunk the charges against Christian men. And even Christians don't know this. Christians are not you know, tuned in to the sociological data. Mm. Uh, and so I said, okay, I, I have to get this out. Yeah. I have to get this information out so that Christian men know that, in fact, they they are doing very well. Here's, yeah. here's, let me give you a quote from Brad Wilcox. I, I, he's my top sociologist. He was, um, let me, uh, yes, here it is. It, uh, it's in my notes here. Um, so he wrote an article in the, in the New York Times, of all places. <laughs> you know, so when I say Brad Wilcox, um, you need to know that he's considered maybe the top marriage sociologist in the nation. Mm-hmm. And he, he does get articles into the New York Times and the Washington Post and Slate and so on. Um, so he, this was in the New York Times. It was, a, it was for Valentine's Day, and, and a progressive writer had written in saying, oh, progressive marriages are much happier. And so he wrote a response. And they published it, and he said, you know, you know you're right, uh, progressive marriages are happier than average because they are more intentional, right? They are trying harder. Mm. But, he said, let me show you my evangelicals. <laughs> it's kind of a J-curve. Let me show you my evangelicals. They test out much better than even progressive secular people. And here's how he puts it. It turns out that the happiest wives, uh, happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. So the happiest wives in all America... But the reason they're testing the wives in particular, of course, is the, is the, under, is the accusation that, that these men are abusive and, you know, that they... they that, um, the chauvinistic, insensitive patriarchs that you know they're oppressive, that they disempower their wives, that they're abusive, and so on. So it's very yeah. it's very important that they say, well, what are the wives reporting? Mm-hmm. Fully seventy three percent of the wives <clears throat> who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services with their husbands actually are the happiest of all wives in America. Mm. Now, Again, Christian. A lot of evangelicals are not reading the New York Times, so we miss this. <laughs> and and yeah. I, like this is this is the main reason I wrote the book. I really wanted to encourage Christian men and women, Christian marriages. Um, they they actually are doing very well by comparison with the rest of society. In fact, in fact, here's how um, here's how uh, Brad Wilcox ends. 
um, I, I, he, he has a whole book on the subject, and here's how he ends it. He says, um, so, so he, because he's so widely known, a lot of secular people read his stuff, and they're like, um, they're like, well, uh, wait a minute, you're saying church has this impact? Uh, I even had a, a, a secular friend who said, who was very skeptical of these findings. She said, well, maybe it's not that Christian men are better. Maybe it's that better men are attracted to church. <laughs> to which I said, yeah, well, then what is it about church that attracts good men? <laughs> uh, you know, you don't, you still don't win. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but Brad, Brad Wilcox said, it, it's kind of funny watching him, you know, as a Christian, you're watching him explain to secular people, actually, church does do some good. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he says, actually, um, listen, here's how it works. Church going does actually expose men to messages telling them that the family was created by God. It's not some evolutionary accident. It's not just a cultural construct. Uh, church tells men that, that they are accountable to God for how they treat their family. Um, it's one of, here's how he puts it, let's face it, it's one of the few institutions in, in the United States where men encounter other men who are interest, interested in talking about fatherhood and marriage mm. and, you know, in encouraging one another to do better. You don't find it at work, you don't find it at, at, in sports, you don't find it at the local tavern. But in church, and this is a direct quote, in church, what you do find is a message and an ethos that is family-focused and gives men the motivation to attend to their f families. And he concludes talking again to secular academics. You know, secular academics need to cast aside their prejudices. <laughs> I love that. Cast aside their prejudices, that is their prejudices against evangelicals. Um, about, oh, about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Theologically conservative family men are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Mm. So this is great news. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like I said, we don't really know this because uh, when I say when I give this information, I often get pushback, even in Christian circles, by people who say, "Well, wait a minute! Haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of society?" Right? H haven't yeah. you heard that? Mm -hmm. Well, so the so the so the, so the researchers went back to the data, and what they did is they divided out. What I, the the men I've been talking about, which are the truly committed, authentically devoted, devout Christian men who attend church regularly, versus mm. nominal Christian men. So I used this phrase in my classroom the other day, and people didn't even know the term nominal. It means technically, it means in name only. Nom mm -hmm. is Latin for name. Nominal means in name only. So these are Christians who, you know, in these surveys. They might check the Baptist box because they live in Georgia. You know, they live in a culture that's that's more culturally Christian or their family background, but they actually don't attend church very often, if at all. Yeah. The numbers were stunning. They were shockingly different. Nominal Christian men have the worst marriages. In other words, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They're, they are the least in, engaged with their children. They have the highest level of divorce, higher than secular men. 
And they have the highest level of domestic violence, higher mm. than secular men. So if you put these two groups together and just measure evangelicals, you're going to get skewed statistics. Yeah. That's why we haven't figured this out before. You have to unpack truly committed Christians from nominal Christians. Because <laughs> the nominal Christians are skewing the statistics. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're, they're ruining the reputation for everyone else, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for all the rest of the Christians. Um, and and here, I'll, let me quote Brad Wilcox again, because he wrote about this in uh, the magazine Christianity Today. And he said, the most violent husbands in America, with the italicized, that, that's his writing, <laughs> he italicized the most violent Husbands in America, a Protestant, Protestant evangelical men who a church who attend church rarely or not at all. Hmm. So this is what we're up against, you know. Like in our in our churches, is that yeah. we need to recognize that there are men hanging around the fringes of the Christian church who hang around enough to pick up language like headship and submission but not enough to pick up the biblical meaning of mm. those terms yeah. and inf- who infuse those terms with secular concepts of domination and entitlement and control and so on, and who end up, as a result, even worse than secular men, a- according mm. to the surveys. So that's what we're up against in terms of, of churches. We need to sort of, we need to figure out how we're going to address these men who are out there in public identifying as Christian, identifying even as evangelical, but who are living worse than, worse than secular men. Yeah. Yeah, the, you, you spent the first, uh, first section of the book going through all this data and arguing against those uh, common sense assumptions and false narratives that there are out there in the culture. And I really enjoyed getting to read that and hear it because I think it... I think that a lot of uh, committed evangelicals anecdotally know that those narratives aren't true because we've witnessed it and experienced it in our own life that it's not true that, you know, our, we, our marriages aren't perfect, but we have happy, healthy marriages. Um, and, you know, I've even, you know, I was reflecting on like my, all my closest friends, my, my best friends, and they're all the kind of men who demographically would perfectly fall in the category that supposedly should be domineering and abusive and so on. They're all you know, masculine men and uh, hold traditional values and uh, believe in, in, in uh, male Christian male headship and so on. Uh, but, but have happy marriages and happy wives. And they, they are so involved with their children's lives and involved in caring for the children and teaching the children and playing with the children in caring for their wives and in honoring their their wives, honoring their wives' desires and um, their their wives' voice and so on. And so, you know, I, I was thinking how I, I know there's so many other people like me who anecdotally, from their life, from their friends, they've witnessed this evidence. <coughs> but then it's just hard to argue against these giant publications and the power of the mainstream media that's pumping out a false narrative that goes against what's our anecdotal experience. The only thing I would say is, uh, because you and I hang out with mostly committed Christian men, I always thought the nominal Christian men would be a small group, because I don't know very many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, uh, according to one study, they're the same size. Mm. There are just as many nominals as committed. What that means is, 
you know, when the average secular person meets somebody who identifies as an evangelical Christian, they, they have a 50-50 chance that that's, just, that's a nominal Christian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's why. So I think that's why so many secular people do get the wrong idea. Yeah, but I'll, I was even speaking of, of, of Christians, of committed yeah. Christians who, um, even though we know experientially that's not it's not the case, uh, still uh, absorb what mm-hmm. our culture says uh, Christian men are actually like. Right. Well, we often hear that Christians develop, uh, divorce at the same rate as others. Uh, in fact, I read, uh, I read uh, that this is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And I, I, I'm guessing they're just trying to motivate us by negative, you know, but, but, you know when you motivate someone negatively. So mm-hmm. Christian leaders do, do use that statistic a lot. And they need to go back to the drawing board and rethink, <laughs> look yeah. at the actual data, because that data f- f- came out of uh, studies that did not separate the nominal from the really committed Christians. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I think... After reading that first section of your book, I realized how, you know, this is the perspective that we need to have in our churches on our own men and then and then treat them appropriately. Because I think that whenever, because like I said, there's a lot of Christians and church leaders and authors who are believing and absorbing the the hostile culture's message. And there's another new book that just came out um, which is about trying addressing the toxic masculinity in Christian men written by a Christian author through a Christian publisher. Uh, and the, the main endorsement said toxic masculinity is rampant in the church. And this book is going to address it. And I thought, you know, you're just playing right into their hand by absorbing the, uh, the, their narrative. And then that leads to turning men away because you're telling them, well, just your nature itself is toxic. Uh, and it leads to uh, either ignoring men. It leads to very harsh treatment against men. You know, the the classic examples of uh, on Mother's Day, the mothers are brought in and told how sweet and wonderful and perfect they are and amazing they are and how we can do without them. Uh, but on Father's Day, we yell at them. <laughs> do better. You need to do better. Yeah. You know, instead of treating them um, with, with similar respect and, and, and trying to encourage them. Uh, and, and push them on and doing good work. So I think it's you know, so important I, which script we believe. I don't, I don't name names in my book, but I have written the book partly to respond to those kind of, the kind of books you just mentioned. You know, mm. the books by even Christian authors who accuse Christian men of toxic masculinity. And I'm like, guys, you haven't, you're not keeping up with the social science. That's my response to them. You're not keeping yeah. up with the social science. You know, just like uh, I mentioned Brad Wilcox as the main marriage sociologist. And when I first read him and he said, where's the data? Where's the evidence? I thought, that's right. Nobody's asking that. Mm. <laughs> and so even Christian books are coming out, which are not informed by the data, by the, by the actual research of the, soci- of the sociologists, the social scientists. Now, I admit I had to go hunting for it. <laughs> you know, you have, to, you have to look for it. It's not going to just fall in your lap. I had to go into sociological journals, you know, academic literature to find a mm-hmm. lot of the studies that I quote in, in my book. But, um, but that's, I mean, anyone who's going to pronounce on this publicly should be doing that kind of research. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just so encouraging. I, like I said, I didn't name names, but I have them in mind. <laughs> I have those kind of books in mind as I'm writing this, hoping that this will yeah. help counter that message. 
that negative message. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, if you don't mind, I'll name a name. There's, you know, the, the, the most famous one that I can think of recently would be the uh, book called uh, Jesus and John Wayne by, um, I can't remember her first name, but Dumez, it's her last name, I believe. And, you know, wildly popular, endorsed by major Christian publications. And, uh, and yeah, I think definitely absorbing uh, a view that's different from your book. How do you respond to, uh, other than writing your book, like what, what what's your response and critique of a book like Jesus and John Wayne? Well, of course, I had to read it as part of my research. You know, I have to read whatever's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose not to even mention it because I think it's, um, I, I didn't want to draw more attention to it, frankly. I did not want to draw more attention to it by even critiquing it. So I didn't. Mm. Um, but there's, uh, uh, there's a couple of things I would say. Number one, her definition of evangelical. She does not even treat it as, an, as a theological position. Uh, she, tr- she, sa- she says point blank in the book, evangelical now means a, po- a political interest group. So, as a result, in my book, I had to actually explain, no, no, I'm treating it as a theological p- position. Mm. I, I had, st- By the way, I had students who did the same thing. When I use the word evangelical, I teach at a Christian college, Houston Christian University. It was Houston Baptist until recently, but now it's Houston Christian University. And even in my, among my students, they said, oh, I've never heard evangelical used in anything, any but a negative sense. Mm. Really? (laughs) So, in my book, I do have to say, okay, you know, because this word has been politicized, I need to clarify that I'm using it in a theological sense, and uh, historians, you know, uh, historians of uh, church history um, usually often uh, refer to David Bebbington's uh, definition. He's a British uh, church historian, and he has four points, you know, you believe that, well, I won't go through it, you know what evangelical means, but it, it means people who, what Schaefer used to say was Bible-believing, <laughs> that was his way, you know, there's, there's the liberals and there's the Bible-believing Christians, um, so I had to pretty much explain, I mean those Bible-believing Christians, uh, so, so first of all, I would take issue with just the very definition of what evangelical is, um, and, and secondly, I, I agree with you. She doesn't seem to be hanging out with the, the men you and I know <laughs> mm. um, because uh, every other, it seemed like every page was full of, of accusations of patriarchal, white supremacy, you know, abusive, uh, oppressive. Um, and, and, and the only thing I kept thinking is you're not paying attention to the data. You're not paying attention to the, sociolo- the, the social sciences sociologists and psychologists who've actually been doing research. And it's mm-hmm. gone back. I think, um, I was trying to think, I, I, I admit it's not that far back. It's like it's to mid-80s or so. I think some of my earliest studies went back to the mid-80s. Um, so from the roughly the mid-80s, mid-90s, uh, 19, uh, 1990s, um, there have been Christian psychologists and sociologists who've been who have been asking this very question. And, you know, just look at all my footnotes and you'll find, you'll, you'll find them all. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been asking, well, what are, what are Christian marriages like? What are Christian men and women like? Uh, what are their families like? There have been dozens, excuse me, I would say about a dozen, <laughs> about a dozen that I researched that have been done over the decades showing that Christian men are actually much more family-oriented, much more uh, 
oriented toward their marriage than the average. And so, uh, and the only difference is, I, I, I did run into a few that were more negative, but again, they were they were not making the distinction between committed and nominal. If, yes, if you don't if you don't make that distinction, you might get worse statistics. And I have a, I saw a few of those kinds of um, studies where they said, "Oh, Christian men, yeah, they're more likely to abuse," and so on. But that's because they didn't make that distinction. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, that's uh, the, my main response: is define evangelical better, <laughs> and look at what the social science data is is actually showing. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, one of the things that she's arguing, and it's right there in the title of the book, is that what we've uh, defined as Christian masculinity is due more to uh, to cultural stereotypes than you know anything biblical. Uh, and I know that. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I've listened to her on podcasts, and I, I know that she argues that uh, much of our current understanding of what masculinity is traces back to Cold War attitudes. And and yeah. you, and in your book, That's, you go you go much deeper in history to look oh, at yeah. how we viewed masculinity and um and, and so on. Yeah, so I don't want to say anything else about uh, her her book, but so tell us about the history of. Uh, the uh, of what masculinity meant uh, and how it changed from uh, from earlier history through the Reformation colonial era, and then you spent a lot of time talking about how the Industrial Revolution changed family life, and then through this massive change came a difference in uh, understanding the role of men in masculinity. Thanks for joining us for part one of this conversation with Nancy Piercy. Return for part two next week to hear the rest of her critique of Jesus and John Wayne as well as more topics on the toxic war on masculinity. Remember to subscribe to Filter so that you don't miss out on any future episodes, including the next one. Also, leave us a review. We'll see you next time.